Well, don't you just love the fall? The weather is so much nicer. You can sit at home comfortably watching the World Series, just like the Dodgers. And maybe just like the Yankees after today. (laughs) More seriously, thank you very much for the Bible swag. I appreciate it very much. It's the great joy of my life to to serve you as your pastor. It's a great blessing to me and my family. Uh, Let us turn to the Lord in prayer together. We thank you, our Father, for the assurance that we have that as we dip into your word, we are diving into a pool of pure and perfect truth. As you are truth, your word is truth. We need it so. We need the truths of this passage so, with so much error being taught. Teach us, we pray. Free us from error. Train us in truth, we pray. Glorify yourself in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we look now in Matthew 16, continuing from where we left off. Jesus' announcement to Peter of his program to build his church. And now he expands on that. And we see uh, the second kind of revelation. I shared with you last week, there are two kinds, broadly speaking. He spoke of the first to Peter when he said his father had revealed to Peter the truth of who he was. Peter had the facts in, in his hands, so to speak, before his eyes, but it took God the Father to reveal to him personally the truth of those. And then the other kind of revelation is the impartation of new information, of new knowledge the person did not previously possess, and we're going to see just that in this section. Let's look first at the necessary background, though, and I remind you that this is so important for understanding Matthew. These are familiar stories and passages, and it's too easy to view them as if they were little, you know, slips of Chinese fortune cookies all by themselves and separate. We know this story, that story, this saying. But this is part of the flow, and it helps us so much to remember what's gone on before and what this is part of. In the larger background, in the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen in the opening chapters up to now that Jesus has presented his credentials as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. And he's called Israel to repent. He's shown who he is. He's demonstrated who he is beyond any uh, reasonable doubt, impeccably. But that generation embodied in its leaders, for the most part, has not repented, has not accepted his message, has not believed in him. In fact, it's been coming to, it has come to a climax in the leaders committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in chapter 12, saying that the works that Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit, in fact, he did by the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus said that was the sin for which there's no forgiveness, and he said that that generation would be forsaken by the Holy Spirit. And so it was. And we see that also in the immediate uh, context. The larger context leaves us wondering, well, what now? Israel is God's people. If they're not responding to their Messiah, then what is God going to do? What is Jesus going to do? What comes next? And we see that in this section. Thinking of the immediate context, what was chapter 15 about? Chapter 15 was the the top men coming from Jerusalem to confront Jesus on this major, massive issue of the fact that his disciples didn't wash their hands ritually before they ate. That was their big concern about Jesus. And Jesus very uh, just plowed into them. Uh, and they said, why do your disciples uh, set aside the, the tradition of the elders? Jesus said, why do you set aside the word of God? And he absolutely nailed them to the wall on that. And after that, he retreated to Gentile lands for a very successful mission where he met this uh, Canaanite woman and uh, brought out her shining faith. And he fed the masses still in Gentile lands. But then at the start of chapter 16, he comes back to his hometown where the children are, the people of God. And once again, it's just the same book next page. They want to clash with him. They want to confirm. They demand a sign from heaven from Jesus. That's what they need. All these other signs haven't done the trick, but boy, one more. That's the ticket. That ought to do it. And Jesus says, no sign's going to be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
And as he'd early said, earlier said, that is Jonah spending three days and nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man would spend three days in the heart of the earth. And then he would rise again. So after that, what happened then? One more clash with these leaders, and what does he say to his disciples right after that? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who's the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They're the leaders. They're, they're the teachers. They're it. That's where doctrine's supposed to come from. Those are the, supposed to be the teachers of the law of God. And Jesus says, beware their leaven. And the disciples, after knocking their heads together a while, finally figure out, thanks to Jesus knocking their heads together a little bit, they figure out, oh, he's talking about their what? What's the, their what? Their teaching, their doctrine. Well, no, that's kind of a problem. These are the teachers. We're supposed to respect them and look to them for doctrine. If we're supposed to beware their doctrine, then where is teaching going to come from? What is God going to do now that his people have rejected rejected the Messiah and God has rejected them for the time? God's benching them for a time. What now? Well, that's exactly what this is all about. So let's look at this closely then. I've slowed us down. It's worth it. These are very portentous words. And let's look first Roman numeral one. This is a little bit of a review, but setting it in the context of the whole. These verses are just too heavy and controversial to take all at once. Roman numeral one, we look at the church's one foundation, which we looked at last week. Slightly different angle now, just a slightly different angle moving into the next verses and first seeing the connection in verses 13 through 15 with what I've tried to set out for you, the connection, capital letter A in your outline, the connection. And when Jesus came into the parts of Caesarea Philippi, he began to ask his disciples saying, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, now notice they, this is the answer of the group. Some, on the one hand, say John the Immerser, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he says to them, but you, who do you say that I am? Well, what's the focus of all these words? Obviously, yes, it's Jesus. Now, I I read a commentator who said, well, this section really focuses on Peter. No, it doesn't. (laughs) It really doesn't. The whole question is, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And once Peter says the truth about Jesus, the rest hinges on that. So no, this, this section is not about Peter. Leave it to scholars to miss the obvious. This section is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, you see, is where everything goes right or everything goes wrong. And this is the whole issue of the gospel. This is really the whole issue of everything. It's the whole issue of this section. What, where have these leaders gone wrong? Well, they've gone wrong on Jesus, really. Had they seen him for who he was and responded to him appropriately, appropriately they would have repented. They would have come to faith. They would have been making everything right. But... No, 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 they can't be wrong. This is, this is the attitude that will carry countless uh, billions to hell. They can't be wrong. They can't fundamentally rethink things. Jesus has to be wrong. And they go from there, and they go wrong from there. So that generation is going very wrong, and the big, one big reason for them going so wrong is the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. What's the characteristic of leaven? Why does Jesus call it leaven? Leaven tends to spread, permeate, penetrate. And so their teaching has gone through that generation. And so that generation also rejects the Lord Jesus by and large with with exceptions. And so the central demonstration that they've gone wrong is how they respond to Jesus. As Jesus says in, in John 6, everyone who's been taught by my father comes to me. Well, they've not come to Jesus. So what does that tell us about them? They've not been taught by the Father. They've not been taught by God. And that's why their leaven is so bad and has to be rejected. The issue of who Jesus is. And so Jesus brings them down to the central issue. The central issue is what are they going to say about Him? What are they going to say about Him? Who will they say He is? And He does this where... Caesarea Philippi, remember there's two Caesareas. We, we looked at the one in Sunday school along the, the coast. This is probably the furthest north that Jesus has ever been in his ministry. The farthest away from Jerusalem. 
And he's in pagan lands, as we saw last week. Pagan lands, far away from the leaders in Jerusalem, comes the announcement of the church that he's going to build and of who he is. This is Jesus shifting the focus from these leaders to himself. So there's the connection. Now we look secondly, letter B, as we hear Peter's confession, verses 16 and 17. Jesus asked who men said he was, and everybody answers. He say, who do you say I am? And only one person answers. And that person is, is you would guess if you were to, were asked, uh, of all the apostles, only one person speaks, who would you think that would be? Peter's usually the right answer. Peter's the right answer here, and it's a really good day for Peter uh, until next week's sermon. <laughs> but <laughs> it's a really good week. To, we'll, we'll take the win today for Peter. But his confession, and in answer, Simon Peter said, you, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in answer, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but rather my Father who is in the heavens. See, this is all about who men say Jesus is. We've got to keep that in mind. And Peter steps up with the answer and he nails it in one. Now, I remind you, this is the first recorded confession by a man that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. This is the first time we've seen somebody confess in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is the Messiah. They've said that he's the Son of God, but here he says he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah. And these words are full of meaning. They say worlds about Jesus' person. They say worlds about his work. And remember I showed you the focus in the phrase is Christ. Why is that? Well, looking ahead at what we're going to look at, he announces the, the construction of his church, which has never existed before, a new creation, resting on the foundation of this, this confession, of confessing him to be the divine Messiah, God Messiah. Why does he need to be Messiah to be the head of this new society? Well, we have the advantage of the rest of the Scripture to tell us that, that this company of people could only be headed over by somebody who was Christ, somebody who fulfilled the offices that that word Christ points to. What offices does Christ or Messiah point to? The anointed one? Well, he would be the prophet who brings God's word to his people. As Moses had brought God's word to, to um, Israel, so Jesus would bring God's word to his people. The difference being he's the creator of this house, whereas Moses was just a servant in the house. But this is his church he creates. And as its prophet, he brings God's word to it. And as priest, he alone makes full atonement for all of the sins of all of God's elect, for every one of the people in this people, every person, every individual, every man, woman, and child in this assembly, he makes full atonement for them to reconcile them to God. Only such a person can be the head of the society. And as king, he will one day defeat all of their enemies, bring in the kingdom of God and rule over them. So only such a person could be the head of this new society that Jesus announces. And it puts Jesus in a place shared by no other, not even close. You are the Christ, the Son of the, the living God, Peter says. And where did this come from? Well, Jesus credits God the Father with this revelation, as he'd said in chapter 11. He hides these things from the wise and intelligent, but reveals them to babes. And so God revealed to Peter the significance, the meaning, and the power of the information they all had. But God revealed to Peter what it meant. And it may well be that all the other apostles said the same but in their hearts, but Peter's the one who said it out loud. That's going to be an important point, as we'll see. So, uh, Though, as I say, all of them may have thought it, Peter was the one who put it into words. And so that is where this new construction comes in. Letter C, Jesus announces his new work of construction. Verse 18a, his work of construction. And Jesus' wording parallels Peter's. Did you notice that? Peter says, you, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, and I, I also say to you that you, you are Petros. And on this Petra, I shall build my church. Well, this new construction, let us consider first together its foundation. On this Petra, Jesus says. 
I won't re-preach last week's sermon, just remind you that this is not Peter, this is not the apostles, uh, this is not even the person of Christ per se, because the focus here is the confession of Jesus as divine Messiah. And so the foundation of that church will be that confession, the doctrine, the truth, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This confession is the focus here, and this confession is the bedrock of the church. So, of course, the the person of Jesus underlies that truth. I mean, that doctrine with no Jesus would be worthless. It just would be yet another human philosophy, yet another false idea. But, of course, the reason why that doctrine is powerful is because it, in turn, rests on a real person. He's the cornerstone, personally, of that foundation. It's not just philosophy or doctrine or religion, no, no. It's the description of the real person of Jesus Christ. You can't really part them together. They're they're both very close to each other. And um, so the church is built on this truth, and it's defined by the people who confess this truth. That's the point. Now, this is is an important uh, teaching point about the role of doctrine. Um, especially in recent decades, it's been very popular. And this is a thing that comes in waves, I think. It it happened with Schleiermacher in the 1700s. It comes in waves where people want to say they're Christians, but they don't want to believe anything that Christians are supposed to believe because it's unpopular or it's hard or whatever. So they want to downplay doctrine, and they want to say that doctrine is lifeless, and they want to say that doctrine divides. Well, it's true. Doctrine divides. It's supposed to divide. And in this case, it divides the church from everything else. The doctrine that Jesus is God the Son, the Messiah, does divide the church from everything else. It defines the church. But it also presents Christ to us. It says who he is. Now, you'll hear people say, well, I I don't, um, you know, want to bother myself with doctrine. I just want Jesus. Now, of course, the immediate response to that should be, oh, tell me about this Jesus. And if the person says, well, he's the Son of God, you say, doctrine. That's what that is. Anything you say about Jesus is doctrine. So what's the relationship of doctrine? Is it possible to uh, give mental assent to the doctrine but not know Jesus? Well, yes, it is. Remember, we've talked about the three elements of saving faith. Being aware of the facts is just the first part of saving faith. Believing them to be true is the next uh, important element of saving faith, but that leaves one other element, resting on those truths commitment to those truths, trust in those truths. That's where the personal comes in. But listen, don't miss this. It's the statement of the truths that that presents Jesus to us. So if Jesus were a human being somewhere and and you said, well, I'd like to know Christ, what would my answer be? You've got to go to Jerusalem and shake his hand, right? That's what you've got to do. You want to know Jesus? There he is. Go get him. (laughs) Or if Jesus were an experience or a feeling, well, then I, I guess I'd have to give classes on how to whip that feeling up or how to have that experience. If he were an aroma, we'd have to chase for where that aroma is. Or if he was a sound, we'd have to listen for that sound. But how does God come to us? I would hope every regular attender could give a quick and convinced answer to that question. How does God come to us? He comes to us in his word. That is how he's touched creation from the very start. And it's still how he does. What does he do when he wants to create a universe? He speaks. How does he create it? By his word. Well, he sure doesn't do that anymore. Yes, he exactly does. (laughs) The first thing Adam knows about God is he hears God talking to him. What saves Abraham is believing the word of God. What brings us to saving faith is the gospel of Christ. God comes to us in his word. So how does that relate to this? Well, the doctrine of who Christ is is the church's foundation. You say, well, is it that or is it Jesus? That's actually a, a silly question. Because doctrine simply is the description of Jesus. It's who he is. It's who we trust in. So we don't become Christians by shaking a hand, jumping, dancing a jig, or chanting a chant. We come by hearing the word of God, understanding it, believing it to be true, and resting on it. Amen? That's the process. And that's why church rests on the doctrine of who Jesus is, and at the same time, in so doing, is resting on Christ, because the doctrine is nothing but a statement of the truth about Jesus Christ. And that's what we rest on. That's what defines us. That is why doctrine is always uh, more important than anything. That's why it's the center of everything. The teaching, the preaching of the Word of Christ is the center of everything for the church, or should be. 
But in our consumeristic society, that's not the center. People want what they want. And so to them, picking a church is just like picking a supermarket or or something else. The, The one that gives me what I want the way I want it. But the Christian asks, what does God want the way he wants it, and looks for that. And the centrality of the, of the word of God, and, the, and therefore the person of Christ, that's what God cares about. So that's the foundation of that church. It's, is it Jesus, or is it the doctrine of Jesus? Well, that's a hard question, but if I have to split that atom, I would say it's the doctrine of Jesus, because it's our confession of that doctrine that identifies us as Christians, but it only saves us because... It is the person of Christ. It's the expression of who he is. That's how we know him, by believing what he says about himself. That's the foundation. And so on this foundation, we have a new creation. Number two, a new creation. Jesus says, I will build my church. On this Petra, this bedrock, I will build my church. Now, the Greek uh, syntax makes an emphasis there that just would have been very... uh, wooden to try to bring out in the English, but he extremely literally says this, I will build my, the church. (laughs) That's perfectly good Greek, and it has the effect of stressing the pronoun. The church that I'm going to build is my church, my church. Now, this is something nobody, no Christian should ever forget, my church. So it's not for man to define the message and meaning of the church. And when you hear people going to have these high-minded discussions about that, unless it's a Bible study, it's worse than a waste of time. The church's message and mission is not ours to define. Amen? It's ours to discover and pursue. It's been given. It's right here. And in the words that open this up in the rest of the New Testament. So our part is not to, you know, sit around gazing at our navels and, and, and reflecting personally and asking ourselves what we feel the message of the church ought to be in its mission. It's to open, crack open a Bible, read the words, understand them, believe them, and do them. You say, that sounds simple. Fundamentally? <laughs> yep. Fundamentally, it's simple. Fundamentally. And yet, we're, we're like circus knife throwers whose greatest skill is missing the target with every throw, Right? Hitting the target is failure (laughs) in that case, and that seems to be what a lot of Christian leadership is, experts at missing the target. Don't need to amen that one. That's okay. So our part is to discover and pursue this. And so Jesus says in the future tense, I will build my church. The church has not existed and will not exist until Jesus builds it. It's a new creation, I say. Let me just read to you Ephesians 2, 13 through 16, but do note it down. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now, Paul says, writing to a predominantly Gentile church, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Christ, pardon me, brought near by the blood of Christ. Now I pause. If it's the blood of Christ that brings them near, then does this church exist as Jesus says these words? Well, of course not. He hasn't shed his blood yet. That needs to happen before the church can exist. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments consisting in ordinances, so that in himself he might, listen, create the two into one new man making peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. That's the church. A new man, a creation founded on the blood, accomplished by, I should say, by the blood of Jesus, reconciling them to each other and to God in a new body, not under the law of Moses at all, per se, but under Christ. So, at that time, Israel has benched itself, not forever, Romans 9 through 11, not forever, but at, at that time, Israel has benched itself, and the concern of God's program is the church. Secondly, let's look at the church's inv- invincible preservation. You've seen its one foundation now, its invincible preservation in verse 18b. He says, And the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. (laughs) Well then, next verse. No, uh, we can't do that. But uh, one academic commentary that I have lists out 12 views of what 
these words mean, and I'm sure that's not exhaustive. I know for a fact it's not exhaustive. But uh, what do they mean? Well, in all these words, and these are all very controversial and uh, controverted, uh, argued over, we're just going to look at the terms and try to understand the terms, and then we'll look at what the terms mean when you put them back together. So let's do this. First term we run into is the gates. He says the gates of Hades. What's the significance of gates? Well, you know gates occur a lot in the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament that existed in Jesus' day, called the Septuagint, uh, the, this word, pulai, occurs 373 times. And it has a wide range of meanings. If you've been in our psalm study, our Proverbs sermons, you've heard a bit about this. Uh, the gates were the entry point of a city in a city, and inside the gates was a large plaza. And in that plaza was basically the life of the city. In that plaza, merchants sold their goods. The most that were sold by those gates gave their name to the gate, the sheep gate, the fish gate. Don't want to really think much about the dung gate, but there was one. And in, those, in that plaza, the courts would sit, the rulers would, would conduct the affairs of, of their office, the king might hold a, a meeting, uh, prophets would preach and minister. It was kind of the, the center of the city inside those gates. Um, and um, so the gates came to mean uh, a point where the city was ruled and so forth. That's the Old Testament, though. In the New Testament, the word only occurs ten times. And it doesn't have that range of meaning. It's very, very simple in the New Testament. You look at all the, all the uses, and they're all just simply an entry point. Uh, entry point into a city, entry point into the temple, entry point into a house. There's only one metaphorical use of it, and it's worth looking at. Turn to Matthew 7 with me. It'll actually help us here. Verses 13 and 14 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. So there you see the gate is simply the entry point. But he goes on to say, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. But the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life and there are few who find it. So one more thing to note about gates though. In the life of a city, gates are offensive or defensive? They're defensive. Gates are stationary. Gates don't move. They don't go anywhere. And if a city's under attack, the gates are closed. A bar falls into place. Some of these gates are reinforced with various kinds of metal. Some are even of stone, they found. But it was a defensive point. Not, gates did not march out in conquest. They didn't go anywhere. They stood at the entry point to the city. Very important to keep in mind. We'll get back to this later. But now we come to the word Hades. Well, it's very important to understand what Hades means. One helpful fact is to note that Hades is the same as Sheol. And if you're new to the Bible, you're saying, that's not helpful actually at all. <laughs> but if you've read the Bible a good bit in a good translation, you've seen Sheol a lot. S-H-E-O-L. Well, the Old Testament Sheol is basically the same as the New Testament Hades, the Greek word Hades which um, may mean the invisible realm or something like that. But regardless, what each of them describes is just generally the place people go when they die. Not their bodies, but the person. The body goes into the grave. This is not the grave. This is the place where the soul goes when it dies. It's, it's just a general word. Saved and lost alike go to Hades. That's a very important thing to note. Jacob expected to go there. Uh, Job, David, uh, it is the place where the righteous go as well as the unrighteous when they die. And so, similarly in the New Testament, both the rich man and Lazarus in Jesus' story in, in uh, Luke 16, both the rich man and Lazarus are in Hades. The rich man's being punished. Lazarus is being comforted. But they're both in Hades. They, they can see each other. They can hear each other. They're in the same place, but different parts of the same place. It's just generally the place where people go when they die. And here's a very important point about that. It is not hell. Now, some of you have a translation in your lap that says hell here. It's, that's not helpful. The King James says it. Oddly, the ESV says it, even though I think everywhere else it translates it Hades. But here it translates it hell. It is not hell. 
Now, the English word hell has a, a storied history, but it has come to mean, and we use it to mean, the place of final punishment. Hades is not the place of final punishment. The word Jesus uses for that is Gehenna. We've seen him use that word, Gehenna. Book of Revelation calls it what? The lake of fire. Nobody's in hell yet. Revelation teaches nobody's in hell yet. That comes after the great white throne judgment uh, that people are sent to hell. Now they are under punishment in Hades. It's like a holding cell. But it is not hell. So it's not helpful to call it hell. If you've got a legacy standard Bible, you've got Hades. You're, you're cool. If you've got an, I mean, you're not a cool person. You know, you, I'm sure you are a cool person, but um, so, are, so is everyone who has the other translations. The LSB, the American Standard, the New American Standard, the Christian Standard, and the ESV everywhere else translate the word Hades. So the word for hell is Gehenna, not Hades. Nobody's in hell yet, but dead people do go to Hades. And one other very important point to note, Satan is never said to rule here. This is not a place where Satan rules. Now, right away, I know some of you are thinking, oh, well, right away I'm seeing that what I was taught about this or heard about this has to be off. It may well be. There are a lot of very wrong popular ideas about what Jesus is saying here. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Those are important things to know about Hades. And finally, the verb overpower occurs a lot in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but only three times in the New Testament. And it means just what it looks like. It means to prevail over. It means to be stronger than. It means to um, overcome or conquer. It's those ideas. Prevail, overpower, be stronger than, conquer. And it's interesting, isn't it? Are you thinking right away? But that sounds like an aggressive word. You just told us that gates was a defensive word. And here overpower sounds like an offensive word. That is a puzzler, isn't it? We'll have to talk about that in just a second. But all we have to do for starters is to understand what the words mean. Now we need to put them together and talk about the meaning of these words put together. I'm going to start by telling you the simple meaning of what Jesus says here. What is he saying when he says the gates of Hades shall not overpower? He's simply saying this. Death will not overpower my church. Simply that. Death will not make an end. Death will not make an end of my church. Death will not be stronger than my church. Death will not conquer my church. Death will not overpower my church. And we're helped by some Old Testament passages that talk about Sheol, including the words we read at the start of the service today. Let me give you a few. Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5. Listen, Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5. The cords of death encompassed me, David says, and the torrents of vileness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. Now, that is death sounding aggressive. And that's what he's saying. I was almost swallowed up by death. He came to a point where he was near death, but God rescued him and he didn't die. But what's the point here? The point is, if death had got me, then that would be it. Because there's gates on it, or the Old Testament says there's bars on it. And what's the purpose of those? Nobody gets out. There are no such things as ghosts. Once a person goes to Sheol, he does not find his way out and haunt people. People who go to Sheol stay in Sheol until God brings them out. So David is here singing about a time he almost went there, which would have been the end of him, as far as the world is concerned, not the end of his personality. But that's not really the focus of the Old Testament usually. Psalm 116, verse 3, that we read at the start of the service. The cords of death encompassed me, and the distresses of Sheol found me. I found distress and sorrow. But he prayed for deliverance, and the Lord delivered him. He did not die, although Sheol tried to take him. Death tried to take him. So do you see, on the one hand, it's a place that doesn't move, but it is trying to suck people in, because that's where we're all going. And we have brushes with it, but God brings us out of them. One more, Proverbs 1.12, and this is in the section where Solomon and his wife are warning their son against getting in with the wrong crowd. And here's what the wrong crowd says in Proverbs 1.12 about the innocent. Here's their plan. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole as those who go down to the pit. Well, to do that, Sheol doesn't really have to move, does it? Death doesn't really have to go anywhere because the wages of sin is death. And that's where we're all headed but they speak aggressively, swallow them alive like Sheol. So let's come back to Jesus' words. How could we put what he's saying in different words and maybe use these Old Testament verses to do it? 
I've got a couple of tries. We might paraphrase it, the cords of Sheol will not drag my church down, you see. Or we could paraphrase it, Sheol will not swallow my church alive, you see. Or positively, you could say, my church will live, my church won't die. So what's the impact of this? You say it sounds fairly simple to say that. It does sound fairly simple to say that until you remember the setting in which he said it. 19th century scholar John Broadus said very well that this is a bold prediction for a homeless teacher with a handful of followers. Yes, it is. In fact, I would add a homeless teacher who's about to die. And yet he says, my church will not die. My church will not be swallowed up by Sheol. The gates of Sheol will not overpower my church. Or uh, modern scholar D.A. Carson said it well. He says, this claim is ridiculous if Jesus is nothing but an overconfident popular preacher in an unimportant vassal state of first century Rome. Indeed it is, but it's not if he's the divine Messiah. It's not if he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Then this is just the words of truth. So um, think of... um, now, this is, this is dangerous because we're just such a cracked and insane age that um, it's hard to, to find a cult that I'm sure there's nobody in anymore. You know? <laughs> I mean, there probably is somebody there in California who's still in this cult from the <laughs> B.C. or Austin. But um, where are the Mithraites, you know? Where are the worshipers of Mithra? Where are the Druids? Where are the Baal worshipers? Where are the Ashtoreth worshipers? Where are the um, worshipers of the Greek gods? Where are the worshipers of Moloch? Well, unless they're in California or Austin, they're nowhere. They, they don't exist. These things have been swallowed up by Sheol, you could say. They've all died. Where's the Christian church? Oh, where could I find one? Oh, wait. <laughs> Here. And all over the place. And all over the place. It hasn't been swallowed up by shale, although shale is tried. Individuals have been put to death. But what's Jesus promised? Does he say, nobody in my church? No, he says, my church. I will build my church and the gates of, of Hades will not prevail against it. And indeed, the gates of Hades have not. Even though it's been tried. Has any group been subject to genocide more than Christians except maybe Jews? It's been tried. So uh, the reason why it's still around is because the foundation is eternal. And the builder is Jesus, the divine Messiah. And so uh, Tertullian could say in about 200 AD, he could write this to the rulers of Rome. He could say, the oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed, he said. And so it is proven, why? Because we're so smart? Oh no, we'd be long gone if it depended on that. (laughs) No, no, it's because Jesus is building his church. It's Jesus' church, my church, he says. And the gates of Sheol, the gates of Hades, will not and cannot prevail against it. So you see in the book of Acts, Stephen is stoned. He's killed. What happens? Paul is converted, one of the witnesses. The church is persecuted and some are put to death. What happens? They spread out, preaching the gospel, spreading the church. Does the church die? Does not. Individuals? Yes. The church? No. In fact, sometimes the death of those individuals accomplishes, accomplishes the spread of that church. So here's a few things to note before we move on from this now that we understand it. Negatively, you must understand, I'm sure you've heard the the contrary, but you must understand, this is not about our attacking hell. It's not about hell. It's not about our attacking Satan. Satan is not currently in Hades. It's not about those things. It's not about us going and trying to rescue people from Hades, in which case we'd be resurrecting the dead, including the long dead. But that's that's not our mission. And it's not about Satan and his demons attacking the church either. It's not about the dark powers of hell. The church will withstand the dark powers of hell. It's not hell. And it's not demons. You never read of demons in Hades. It's, it's not about that. It's about what I explained to you. So that's important to keep in mind. Here's another important thing to keep in mind. When you have some nice, clean-cut, washed-up person coming to you. Washed-up sounds wrong. I mean, you know, washed. Clean. 
sparkly person coming to your front door, explaining to you how the gospel and the church was lost uh, after the first century and, and was just gone for centuries until their prophet rediscovered it in the 1800s. And you're looking at a Jehovah's Witness or you're looking at a Mormon and they're saying the church is gone. Can't have happened. Can't have happened. Because Jesus says that Hades will not overpower his church. The gates of Hades will not overpower his church. So it can't have been gone. And that's the striking thing about Jehovah's Witnesses. You ask them, show us your spiritual lineage through verifiable sane people history and it can't be done. Ask the Jehovah's Witnesses. We call them Arians, but they're not really Arians. They've got no, they've got no ancestry doctrinally. They're just a new thing. And if they're right, then they're wrong. If they're right, Jesus is a fraud. And that's a high price, isn't it? Because they, insi- they, they rest on the a thought that the church vanished for a time. It was dead and gone for a time until they popped up. Two Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, pardon me, two Mormon missionaries talked to me once and they told me that they were part of the recovery of the, do- of the gospel. And I asked, well, where did it go? I said, look at Romans 1.16. And they had a Bible and they had not seen this before apparently. And I showed them Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I said, there it is. <laughs> it's right there. It was there all along. It didn't go away. Why did it need to be recovered? And when we, we celebrate the Reformation, we're not celebrating that they've invented something new. It was their insistence that they were preaching what the believers have preached throughout the ages and what was in Scripture. So, Satan can't kill the church. Now, here's a sobering thought before we move on, though. Does that mean he gives up? He can kill Christians, but he can't kill the church, so does he not try to do anything? No. He tries to corrupt it instead. That's what he does. And that's what we read about in the New Testament a lot. False doctrine. Doctrines of demons. This is what he seeks to do. He can't kill it, so he'll corrupt it. Reason to keep on guard. Number three... The church is defined admission. So we know the church's foundation. We know its preservation. Now we look at its admission. How do you get into this church? Jesus says, I shall give to you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens. Oh boy. Well, what does this mean? Let's look at the terms. What are the keys about? What's the meaning of keys? Well, I've been studying scripture in Greek and Hebrew for getting near to 50 years now. Hours and hours of study. I'm ready to tell you what keys are. Are you ready? Get ready to write. Here's what keys do. They open and close things. You're welcome. Close in prayer. No, that's that's simply what keys do. Uh, But there's a little more to it than that. Turn to Isaiah 22 with me. And we'll get a little bit more of what what Peter's being given, what Jesus means when he tells Peter that he's going to give him the keys of or the keys to kingdom of the heavens. We'll just start reading in Isaiah 22 in verse 15. I'll do some summarizing. But you need to note, thus says the Lord Yahweh of hosts, come go to this steward, to Shebna. So Shebna is a steward, is the way this translates it. Difficult Hebrew word, but he's a steward. It describes what he does. He's in charge of the royal household. He's over the royal household. He has some responsibility there. And then God reproves him for his arrogance and says he's going to kick him out of his office. Uh, Hurl him headlong, he says. He says, verse 19, look here. I will push you out of your office. I will pull you down from your station. And it will be in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will give your authority into his hand and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set, what? The key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. That's as far as we need to read. So it is part here of the steward's office, the person who is over the royal household, the person who bears authority and responsibility. To say that it's on his shoulder probably doesn't mean he literally wore a key on his shoulder, but the shoulder is the place of responsibility. He bore that burden. He bore the burden of that office and had the authority of that office. And so as part of that office, he controlled access to the things in the king's household. He controlled access to the king's household. When he opens, none will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. That's how he uses that key. Now, that imagery 
will help us understand what Peter is being given here, what Jesus means when he says, I'm giving you keys. It's a position like a steward, like perhaps a prime minister in the kingdom. It's a position of responsibility, and it's a position that has something to do with access. And the words that follow will tell us more about that when we put them together. But now you've got the basic idea of keys here, and now the kingdom of the heavens. I just have to remind you, what are the kingdom of the heavens in in Matthew? Is it heaven? It's not. The kingdom of the heavens is the long-prophesied, long-awaited kingdom of God come to earth. It's the prophecy of the messianic or uh, the messianic kingdom, the rule of God over the earth. It's not heaven. When the kingdom comes, it will come to earth. When Jesus says it is at hand, he's saying it's not there, and he's not saying so. Let's everybody die and go to heaven. He's saying that that it is just at the door. God's kingdom, which will come to this planet, and one day this literal planet will be the kingdom of God. The the capital will be in Jerusalem, Messiah will be the ruler, and the entire globe will be the kingdom of God. That is one day. That's not now. It's not heaven. So, this has nothing to do with St. Peter standing at the pearly gates with a key around his neck, figuring out who gets to go in in and out of heaven. So that, you know, if you're thinking one day that you were looking forward to making your case with Peter about whether you should get into heaven or not, forget it. Peter's got nothing about that. You will not be talking to Peter about heaven. You've got to think about God. You've got to think about Jesus, the door. That's what you've got to think about. That's what I've got to think about. Not Peter standing at the pearly gates. This is the kingdom of the heavens that he's talking about. And interestingly, not the church, is it? Isn't that interesting? I will build my church, he says, but he doesn't say, I'll give you the keys to the church. But I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of the heavens. What's that relationship? Hmm. We better talk about that in a second. He also certainly doesn't give you, he also does not say that I will give you the key to the kingdoms of the world or to fame and power. It's not that. It has to do with the kingdom of the heavens. Well, now let's talk about the meaning. And let's talk about the relationship of the church and the kingdom. On the one hand, note this down, the church is not the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is not the church. But there is a relationship of the church to the kingdom of heaven. One commentator says, I like this, that the church is the forecourt of the kingdom. That's not a bad way to put it. It's the forecourt of the kingdom. But let's talk about what it really is. Though it's not the kingdom of heaven, every man or woman who is converted and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's born again, becomes a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. By virtue of being in the church, he becomes a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Does the Bible say that? It says exactly that. Colossians 1, verses 12 and 13. I'll read that to you. Colossians 1, verses 12 and 13, where Paul speaks of Christians giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The Father who rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. You hear that? This is what He did to Christians then. We were, as Ephesians 2 says, walking in accord with the prince of the powers of the air. In this age, we were fully in lockstep with this dark kingdom. The kingdom of man, the kingdom of Satan. But God transfers us out of that domain and into the kingdom of Christ. Where the kingdom is not here, but we are citizens of that kingdom. We are, as it were, citizens abroad. We, as it were, have a dual citizen. We may be citizens of the United States of America, but we're also citizens of the coming kingdom of God. And so Philippians 3.20 also says, Philippians 3.20 For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven, one day, Jesus will return to set up his kingdom on earth. So there's a bit about the relationship of the church and the kingdom. And how is Peter given these keys? Well, Peter was the the first to confess so he'll be the first to open the door. 
Providentially, a joke was brought across my eyes just before Sunday school. Uh, I will leave it to you whether this is a dark providence or a happy providence. Uh, I will apologize in advance, but here's the joke. And let me just again say how sorry I am. But here's the joke. Why was Peter called rock? Answer, because he was a little bolder. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But (laughs) it has a point. Whether all the others were thinking this, Peter's the one who said it. He's the first one who made that confession that would be the foundation of this church Jesus would build. And so Jesus gives to him the keys. Now notice he says in the future tense, I will give you. He doesn't say I am giving you. So when do you expect Peter to have these keys? When Jesus makes his church. What chapter in the Bible would you go to to see the birth of the church narrated? Acts chapter 2, hey, we've got a Sunday school class about that. So turn to Acts chapter 2, and I'd like to show you Peter using the keys. And notice it is keys, plural. I don't want to push this too hard, but it it goes nicely with the fulfillment. Uh, Eliakim is given a key. Peter is given keys. And to whom does he preach in Acts chapter 2? To whom does he preach Christ? Who's brought into the church through his preaching? Do you hear me? Who does the Holy Spirit bring into the church, this brand new church that just begins here in the Bible? Who does the Holy Spirit bring into the church by Peter's preaching? Look at verse 5. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound, the sound of them speaking in, in languages that God... God gave them. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So who are these? Jews. These are Jews. Now look at verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, this is the beginning of his sermon, raises his voice and says, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. So who does he think he's preaching to? Jews living in Jerusalem. And then drop your eyes down to verse 36. How does he conclude his sermon? Well, very powerfully. And with these words, what does he say? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So who is evangelized and brought into the church here? Jews. So who's kind of a next half step out from the Jews? Is there anybody who's kind of like half Jew, half Gentile? Samaritans. Where, what chapter is that? Oh, chapter 8. Turn to chapter 8. And there's Philip there preaching in Samaria. And he's preaching the gospel, and a number of people believe, and, and that's the end of the story, right? Well, no, interestingly, it's not the end of the story. The, the word gets to the apostles in Jerusalem, verse 14. And what do they do? They send Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And verse 17, they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? It's the mark of the church. By one spirit, we're baptized into one body. That was verse 17. So, Who's taking lead here? Well, Simon comes up and tries to buy the Holy Spirit. And who answers him? Verse 20, Peter. So John and Peter come. Peter's there, these new believers, and and he lays hands on them. Now, you, you say you read that if you've been a Christian for some time, and you say, well, that's not the way it usually happens, is it? No, it's not the way it usually happens. But this is the historical spread of the church. And so with this new group brought into the church, Peter goes and shows that they are fully accepted into the church. Laying his hands on them identifies him with them. Giving them the Holy Spirit is God saying, indeed, these are part of the church. So you could say Peter used a key to the house of Israel. Peter uses a key here showing that the Samaritans are also fully brought into the church. And then what's another thing we just, in fact, we're studying right now in Sunday school We're studying the conversion of, what's that guy's name in uh, Acts 10? Cornelius. And what is he? He's a a Gentile. He's a Roman. He's a Gentile. Full-on Gentile. He's not a half-Jew. 
He's a full-on Gentile. And we're not going to go to 10 and 11, because in 10 and 11, you know, the story we're studying in Sunday school. Uh, An angel speaks to them to send for Peter, of all people. Peter is who he's told to send for. Isn't that interesting? Why? Well, I take it because he has the key. Because Jesus gave him the key. He was the first to speak out. He's the first to speak to them in the church dispensation. And so uh, they send, Peter comes over, he preaches the gospel, you know what happens. The Holy Spirit falls in them while he's preaching to them. The part I want to take you to, though, is chapter 15 because of what Peter says about this. In 15, there's this controversy about whether laws of, of Judaism need to be put on Gentiles. The answer is no. And so this is a controversial, and uh, Peter stands up in verse 7. And he says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as also he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Well, there, categorically, that's everybody. Peter's used his key for the house of Israel. Peter's used his key for the half-Jewish Samaritans. And Peter's used his key for these Gentiles. And officially, officially, each of them has brought, been brought into this new church that Jesus has now created and is now building. You say, but doesn't Paul call himself the apostle of the Gentiles? Yes, he does. But very clearly here, Peter was the first one to preach to the Gentiles. Then Paul later had a mission to them. But Peter's the one who opened the door by preaching the gospel to them. Where are we now? The door's been opened. The door has been opened. The key's been used. The door is open to all humanity. Every ethnicity, both sexes. There's this many. Open to all because the gospel is being preached to all. And we find in the apostles' doctrine, in their teaching, the way to enter. So... Oh dear, it's a little late. Do I have to talk faster? Um, number four, the church's authoritative instruction. Verse 19b, whatever you bind on the earth will have been bound in the heavens, and whatever you loose on the earth will have been loosed in the heavens. Well, the uh, gates of, Sh- of Hades had 12 views. This one had 13 views in the academic commentary I use. Let's talk about the terms. It's a little simpler here. Binding and loosing are very well-known terms in Jesus' day because that's what the Jewish teachers did. That's what the rabbis did. They bound and loose. Meaning what? They would, if they bound something, that was forbidding it. If they loosed it, that was permitting it. Simple as that. And so you know they bound a lot of things on the Sabbath. They bound what they called every kind of work on the Sabbath, but they would loose acts of mercy, say, under certain special circumstances. So it's a legislative term. It's a judicial term. Binding and loosing has to do with permitting and forbidding. It has to do with teaching. It has to do with drawing the edges and saying that this is permissible, this is not permissible. That adultery is not permissible, marriage is certainly permissible, and, and so forth and so on. And he's giving that to Peter. And look at the syntax. You see, I've got it like the Legacy Standard Bible has it. Whatever you bind on the earth will have been bound. Not will be bound, but will have been bound. This is awkward syntax. It's, it's meant to be eye-catching. It's what's called periphrastic, which is using two words when one might have done. You know, instead of saying, I I walked, I say, I did walk. Well, this is using two words, and and I I think I can say it simply, and and, and we'll have no casualties. The one word is a simple future tense, will be. And it means just that. No argument about that. Will be. Whatever you bind on earth, here's the verb, will be. But the next word is a perfect passive participle. That taken in isolation would mean having been bound or having been loosed. So it will be having been bound. Oh, you say that's a little awkward. It is a little awkward. It's supposed to be a little awkward because it's supposed to catch our attention and make, our think, make, our, make us think about it and realize the truth of what Jesus is saying. So he's not saying when you bind something, heaven will go, good for you, we ratify that. And when you lose something, heaven will not go. Good for you, we ratify that. What is Jesus saying? When you bind something, 
it will turn out that that's already bound in heaven. You will be doing what heaven already decided. And when you lose something, you'll find that heaven already. In other words, your decisions will reflect heaven's decisions. You will be a servant of heaven, not a ruler. So Peter says something and heaven goes, well, Peter says it, I guess that's it. It's that he, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is led to do what God wants him to do. That's what heaven is. That's a, a roundabout way of saying God. He will bind and loose what God wants him to bind and loose. So I've already leaked into the meaning. Let's talk about the meaning. Uh, from the um, 17th and 18th century, a commentator, Johann Bengel, says it well. He says the keys denote the whole office of Peter, because I think this explains more about what it means for him to have the keys. The keys denote the whole office of Peter. All those things which Peter performed by his apostolic authority, by teaching, exhorting, forbidding, permitting, consoling, forgiving, punishing. Punishing? Well, yes, you think back in chapter 8 again. He's opening the door to the Samaritans, but Simon wants to buy the Holy Spirit. And what does Peter say to him? Your heart is not right with God. In effect, he shuts the door to him, or he tells him he's not through the door. And he, he, he has to repent if he's to enter through the door. But that heart attitude shows he's not in the kingdom of, of heaven. He's not a citizen of the kingdom. And in Acts chapter 5, he disciplines Ananias and Sapphira. And they lie about what they've given. Peter is the one who pronounces judgment on them and they die. So what this is, this binding and loosing, very simply, it's a transfer of teaching authority. And this brings us full circle to chapter 16 and chapter 15. The clash with the top men from Israel. This clash with the Pharisees and Sadducees, which were the two leading teaching groups. And Jesus says, beware their teaching, which is like leaven. Then who do we go to? Here's the answer. Jesus will give that ability, and again, it's future. Not then, but when the church is created, he will give that ability to Peter, and we will see too, to the rest of the apostles. So this answers that question. Beware their doctrine, you will teach my doctrine. And you will teach it with heaven's authority, you see. And that's the apostolic office, which is no more. There are no apostles today unless they're at least 2,000 years old. Because they had to have seen the resurrected Jesus. There are no apostles today. So this is something that is enabled by the Holy Spirit. I'll give you a couple of verses to note down. John chapter 14, 26. Still before his passion, before his death, he tells the apostles, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This is how they can reflect what heaven says. The Holy Spirit will enable them. The Holy Spirit will teach them all things. John 16, 13, that was 14, 26, now 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will guide you into all the truth. So the Jewish leader's teaching must be avoided, not trusted. The, that office is given to the apostles. They will teach what reflects heaven. And Paul has this same uh, role. You see it in 1 Corinthians 14.37. 1 Corinthians 14.37. What does the apostle say there? He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. The Lord's commandments. So he's saying he is writing Jesus' commandments. In other words, he's saying that what he binds and looses is what has been bound and loosed in heaven. Do you see? It's a guarantee of guidance by the Holy Spirit to infallible teaching. So in close... The church Christ builds is founded on the confession that he is the divine Messiah. It is invincible to the very powers of death. It is entered by all races through the gospel. It is ordered by Christ's teaching through the apostles, which we now have in Scripture. So the question is, are you part of that church? It's not just whatever we think it is. It's what Jesus says it is. If, if I am not part of that church, then whatever I'm part of, the gates of Hades will kill it, and me with it, and I will find myself judged by God. It is only if I'm part of Christ's church that I have a Messiah who's atoned for my sins, who rules me, 
and who speaks God's word to me through Scripture. The gospel opens the door. The gospel opens the door to all of you who hear my voice. The question to you is, what do you think of Christ? Will you come in through the door, through faith in Christ? Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words and for the powerful truths they teach us. We thank you above all for the Christ they reveal to us, for his love, his marvelous, marvelous majesty and glory. We pray, Father, for any who doesn't know you here, that the Spirit of God will reveal to them the truth of Christ and lead them to trust in him as Lord and Savior. Thank you for the great joy of being part of that church, which will never die, founded on the truth of Christ and ushering us into the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.